Thank you so much for downloading this episode of So What Do You Really Do? The podcast where I, your host, Dead Air Dan Smaller, interview artists and entertainers about their day jobs. And that's exactly what we got back into doing. Uh, we took some small divergences with other episodes, but we're back talking about day jobs. Uh, in fact, in the studio with me... Uh, when I recorded this was uh, comedian Dana J. Bine, uh, who was uh, who now just scrubs tubs but, and is also a comedian and teaches comedy. And that's what we were talking about, the teaching of comedy, uh, because he is one of the uh, most well-known comedy teachers here in the Boston area. He's been with Improv Boston, teaching for them for a long time. He basically built their curriculum. Uh, he started teaching before that at the Boston Center for Adult Education. Uh, and he was uh, somebody that I originally didn't like did not like the man one bit hated him didn't even know him never met him but for some reason there was something about uh an improviser teaching stand-up comedy that was perverse to me that that i hated turns out swell guy very funny great comedian and one of my closest confidants when it comes to comedy uh and talking and i enjoy hanging out with him and we get along great and so i'm really glad that uh my original preconceived notions of him were absolutely false and wrong and uh that we get along and that we are good friends uh, so i'm glad to have him in here to talk about the beginning of comedy uh his current philosophy on work and that is him not wanting to have a job that is bogging him down. He wants a job that uh, helps make him feel good at the end of the day. That way he can still feel good for comedy. Uh, whereas I and most of us, uh, uh, most of the guests that come on the show, uh, we're slaving away, away at a place that we hate and we all want to kill ourselves because we want to be doing not that. So anyway, that is what the podcast is about today. Uh, it was also turned into an interview f with Dig Boston. So I did the opposite of what I've been trying to do. And I talked about this before. And what I did is we sat down and we just talked did a regular interview. And then I tried to extrapolate that into a news article or an interview article for the Dig, which you can find digboston.com. Go to the comedy section and you can read it online or it's in uh, it's on newsstands right now. So if you're in the Boston area, go to the closest dig box or anywhere you get a newspaper and pick it up. Or, you know, you can just follow on social media and we'll have a link right to the article. So see how the articles change. You know, listen to this, read the article and see how the interviews are different. Um, I didn't change his words, but, you know, I edited them down. I changed the way I asked questions to fit. Uh, and I don't know if that's the right way to do things or the wrong way, but I uh, wanted to give it an experiment and I wanted to try it and see how it went. I think it went great. I think both turned out very good. So that's my opinion. I'm more than welcome to hear yours. You can email them to me at Dennis at DeadOrDennis.com. Shoot them to me on Twitter at DeadOrDennis. Or even better, if you're new to listening to this podcast, do me a favor. Whatever medium you're listening to this on, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, go ahead and just leave a comment in that aggregator of how are you listening to the podcast. Preferably, I would love you to leave, to leave five stars and subscribe and listen to the podcast and share it with friends. But if you think there needs to be an improvement, I'm open to it. So feel free to do that. Anyway, let's go ahead and jump right into this podcast episode with comedian and tub scrubber, comedian Dana J. Bynum. Down and everybody's like, What happened? <laughs> Turned all different colors, and there's nothing a doctor can do for it. All you can do is rest it, elevated, ice it. 
Really? There's nothing you do for a torn calf muscle? It's called a strained calf. Oh, okay. So it's not fully... It's not fully torn. So okay. like if I... If it was my Achilles, which is it's, it's very similar injury to an Achilles, except you can actually put pressure on your leg. Um, and it's, I'm not really even limping. I'm living a little bit. Did you know Achilles was a soldier and Agamemnon was his king? I did not know that. Uh, they were both given women and those are very special things. <laughs> I'm, I realize I'm reciting a thing that you have no idea what it is. No, Nobody uh, does. And, and actually a punchline that it was a poem. Yes. Oh, it's in iambic diameter rhyme whatever that uh oh i should i should be fired from the play that i'm in uh it's a uh, i'm right now currently working on a play called uh all the great books where uh it's uh three teacher or two teachers a gym coach a drama professor and a uh student teacher get together to teach a remedial class all 89 of the greatest books in literature before graduation and that's one of the lines is we do an entire version of the iliad and the odyssey all in iambic diameter rhyme scheme. I can never say the word, whatever it is wow. with him or Shakespeare, whatever those words, iambic diameter or whatever the, whatever it is. I can't say it. I've never been able to say it. I went to, I, I trained in Shakespeare and I still can't say iambic bumper cars. And so there's like a half hour of, of me as the audience just, narrating the Iliad and the Odyssey. I didn't realize you were so into actual theater, so uh, rather than be a lose respect for you for not being able to pronounce that, I gained. <laughs> I didn't know you had that, sir. That's great. I'm, I'm, I, I have to be very weary when I say I, I act because uh, I don't. I do acting. I've been trained in acting. I did a BU film today. I've done a couple over the past few years. But it's literally all I have to do is just be me. Yeah. I don't do character work or drama or cry or any of that 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 shit. You got the poison, the voice for it, so it's yeah. surprising. Yeah, well, it's, everyone also said I have the same voice for radio too. So and the face, so it's a great voice. <laughs> so let's, uh, since we're on the spa, was the did the spa help the calf at all after yeah. work? I've been soaking. I've been soaking. My By the way, you can talk right into that round black uh, thing. Yeah, uh, I didn't realize we were on. <laughs> I know I kind of sneak it up on yeah, people yeah. a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Which, uh, by the way, before you can get into it, your congratulations! You're the first guest in this new studio. Oh, thanks. Yes, I feel honored. It's very cool. It's a cool space. Thank you. I'm trying. I gotta get the padding up of the sound dampening up on the walls. We were a couple things still, but it works. And I just while waiting for you, set it up to be remote controlled. Wow. Yeah, I'm a fucking nerd. <laughs> you're, really, you're a wizard. Not right. everybody has to know your secret. Yeah, but the the the, the, the at least soaking the leg at yeah, work. I, I soaked it. I soaked it once the weekend after, and honestly, icing it and elevating it has been good. And and it's a repeat injury. I've done this before, so okay. Uh, not only uh, same leg. Same leg. My right leg is trash uh, because in 2005 I blew out my knee doing improv which should have been a sign but I did about 10 more years of improv <laughs> I, I blew out my knee pretending which is one of the most masculine sentences a person can say who uh, has the 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 bigger uh, I don't know what this what to call this yet but I'll figure it out for blowing out their knee you doing improv or Jer Palapo doing karaoke Who's got the bigger... Is that a true story? Yeah, I assume it is. I, I know he's blown out his knee. He does the joke as he did during karaoke. Well, I'll say this. Knowing Jer, I bet his was more glorious. <laughs> Mine was, all I did was we got introduced at the beginning of the show, and I did like a, a happy skip to the stage and just blew it out right in skipping. Skipping in the <laughs> and I, blew it out. And I, I did the rest of the show. My cast didn't believe me. 
I was just like, please nobody get on my back. Or, you know, and I did most of the show on my ass or my knees. So it's pretty, uh, it's, yeah, my birthday, 2005. July 17th, 2005. Yeah, I, uh, what is it, November, uh, April 1st, April Fool's Day, I dislocated my shoulder and pinched my rotator's cuff. And that's what, that's the reason I'm here today. Is because what I did was I uh, blew out, I uh, ripped up my rotator's cuff, which ruined my senior year of high school wrestling career, which made me think about going into uh, going to Drexel or any other college for civil engineering uh, on a wrestling scholarship. And the day I went to register for college, I decided to pick TV and radio instead of civil engineering at my backup community college that I went to for six years. (laughs) But yeah, wrestling. I did, but I was wrestling out back with a friend, not on the mat. And then no, uh, Thanksgiving of that same year, that's when everything fell apart. I was wrestling in a tournament, preseason, preseason tournament, Thanksgiving Day weekend. Boom. And that's what ruined everything. This, yeah, my, with my calf, it's the first game. Two out, I, I had three hits, made a few putouts in the outfield, threw somebody out at home from left field. <laughs> I was like, oh, you know, I was really looking forward to this season. And then, uh, yeah. I'm the I'm the Gordon Hayward or the Moon Baglio calls me the Moonlight Graham. Uh, of Baglio would know exactly who that person is. I have no idea. Oh, okay. Also, movie. I got trumped in movie resins by Baglio. Oh. Also, uh, I, or the Gordon Hayward of the McGreevy's comedy softball team. Is that the team you're on, McGreevy softball? Yeah. So they have McGreevy's have a, has a team now. They replaced Giggles. The Giggles team dismantled. Okay. Uh, which one? Out of the two, yeah, Giggles is the one I will still promote. I won't promote Calhoun anymore. And that's because uh, they put the wrong information on their website a bunch of times and would send me very aggressive DMs in my Twitter saying, you have the wrong you have the wrong lineup. Uh, and then one time they're like, look, if you can't pr- uh, promote our lineup correctly, don't do it at all. It's like, this is the information on your website. Well, the shows have changed. Well, you don't have to worry about me doing that anymore. It's just so dumb, but uh, so uh, so the McGreevy's team replaced. Yeah, I have not been following the 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 Bosscom softball this year. Week three, yeah. So okay. week two just happened, and McGreevy's lost. We we won our first game. We played uh, we played B- we played BCF the first week, and then we played I think we played Laugh and lost. No, we played Laugh the first week. It was reversed. Anyway, yeah. Is um who's on the uh, McGreevy's team? Is it all a whole new group of people? Brian P. Brian Hing- Higginbottom. Um, yeah, it's a, it's it's everybody who still wanted to play from the giggles remains, and then anybody who was like waiting to play because okay. you know you had to have a spot. Like I've been waiting. Um, my Tuesdays just opened up last year, but I was too late. So this was the first year. Yeah, I've uh, apparently going to be waiting a long time because <laughs> I've been waiting and my phone didn't ring, but that's fine. Uh, I'm not good at softball anyway. It's just a, a, a you know thing. I'm good in the field. I can hit. To get on base, but but I'm really like, I can catch anything. I'm, I'm proud of my outfield. <laughs> you can catch everything, including a torn, yep. oh, yeah. torn uh, calf. I'll be back before the end of the season, but I don't want to push it because I'm turning forty in July, and I would love to be able to walk for another twenty five years. Oh, well, without a cane, at least. Yeah. But all right, so and I kind of touched on that. You were going to spa now, uh, which I didn't realize at first. I saw you post a lot of pictures yeah. from from this man spa. The hot tubs. Yeah. And, uh, I, clean, I clean a lot of hot tubs. I work at Inman Oasis in Inman Square, which is a wonderful place, but it's also like a minute and a half from my apartment's front door. So convenient, which is yeah. perfect. Uh, the owners, 
are two women who are married. They're the most supportive people of the community of uh, of artists. Like most most of the people that work there have uh, you know unorthodox work schedules. A lot of artists, and they're very accommodating um, to everybody. It's it's wonderful, and uh, I'm there five days a week during the days, and they've been very cool when I've had shows or festivals come up. And switch things around. Yeah, they're so they're so awesome, and it's you know they've got massage therapy private with communal hot tub that's very cool yeah okay uh communal hot tub sounds gross yeah it does it does it's actually not we clean it quite a bit and it's mod it's mo- we're in there you know we're in and out of there most of the time when people are there it's a great it's great it's a japanese wooden community tub i mean it looks great it's the hot tubbing with strangers i have a problem with yeah yeah some people aren't comfortable with that um but uh we don't allow groups of more than three uh, in a party, so um, and most people just go in and they're just quiet. Hmm. They're just quiet and they're just trying to be serene, get a quick reset. Um, yeah, it's it's amazing how few creeps we encounter, and because of that, when there is somebody creepy, we know right away and we manage them out. So, is there anything there that could that could be due to help your knee other than or your calf other than? Oh. Massage therapy will be great once it's uh, once it stops bruising. Like uh, I, don't, I can't wait until it's it stops bruising because the massage therapists are awesome, um, and the hot tubs are great for any stif- stiffness, soreness, injury, healing. The hot tubs are 104 degrees, and uh, a good half an hour in the hot tub is wonderful. Promotes healing. Hold on one second. I don't know if your mics. Nope, it's on because I have three up, not four. Luckily, you've been getting picked up by me. Talk real quick. To say anything. Hey, hey, hey. This yeah, is me. that looks like real volume now. All right. I was bringing Good up Good the... thing I'm super shrill. And... Yeah, I was bringing up this microphone, oh, which wow. I made sure to turn off so I didn't get any bleed over and I've been <laughs> opening up the wrong... For, for first day in the new studio. First day in the new studio. So, uh... Perfection is do? boring. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I'm going to have to do a lot of editing and fixing of the, of the beginning of this podcast. That's yeah. fine. It's yeah. okay. But the, uh... How did you find that job anyway, other than being close to it? So my friend Cheryl has been working there for 10 years. Uh, she's in the Boston theater scene. And uh, she Cheryl? used to be Cheryl Singleton. She, no. um, she's an actor and she used to be in the, in the improv Boston uh, community. She actually had a board of directors at improv Boston hmm. and uh, she worked there and I saw, uh, I was looking for more work and I saw a Facebook post and I quickly messaged Cheryl. I was like, Hey, you've been there for a long time. What do you think? She's like, Oh my God, you'd love it. And so that was it. Uh, reputation wise I'd heard great things about that place and I, I wanted to be I don't want any of my work to be perpendicular to comedy do you know what I mean I want and for me comedy it, it represents wellness in many ways and so this place represents wellness as well it's not exactly parallel but I want all of my all of the things that take up a lot of my time to be uh to be in uh in a vein of wellness to be in a vein as something I can feel good about. Right. Like I don't want any corporate jobs that just take time and don't do anything for me. I can feel good about working at a spa. Everybody leaves happy. You know, I could get, I get uh, access to hot tubs and massage. So that's, you know, it's also in my neighborhood, which I'm very, I love Inman square. Inman square is, I've been there for almost 20 years now. So it's, Despite the summer smell of Inman Square, everything else is lovely. <laughs> All right, well, I, I I hear you on the thing. You want your side jobs to be, or you know, your other jobs outside of comedy to be as in a in true uh, in as untrue. 
unintrusive as possible. Was that a word? I yeah. don't know. Anyway, you know what I meant. I don't want, I don't <laughs> want it to take. I don't want it to take time that feels like it's um, a burden. It's, it's a burden, and it's not just. I don't want to spend my time just for money. I want my time to be spent uh, working towards you know personal wellness goals, mental health goals, uh, you, you know my per, any career projects, anything that can help me move forward as a person. Uh, without having to say, you know, I need to put my my comedy career on pause because this place, you know, is is all about taking, you know, taking all of my time. N- none of these, none of the places I work right now outside of performance have any issues with me performing, which is perfect. Yeah, that's nothing I've ever ran into a problem with either myself. But I've always had the problem having the si- trying to find that secondary job. That is not that is totally stress free, and I can just show up, do my yeah. job, go home, not think about it. And yeah. I've never been able to find that. Yeah. Uh, until I moved here, where I had one job only, which is like the, doing traffic reports. I do not take that inform. I don't take that job home with me yeah. at all. Why would you? Yeah. No. It's well. That would be weird, right? In radio, it's <laughs> yeah. well, well. You should see my coworkers. They are they are listening to police scanners twenty four seven. Just try. Like someone will come in the next day. He's like. So I heard you had a really big overturned tractor trailer in Connecticut. I'm like, we don't even produce Connecticut. Why do you know this? Like they are are are, are traffic cinephiles. Exciting day. Uh, we traffic files. Right. Yeah, and it's uh, I don't get it. Uh, but luckily for me, I don't have that kind of a passion. Uh, I don't take it on with a. Uh, it it's and now all my money is coming from entertainment. So radio acting. And a little bit from stand up comedy. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> but, that's great. So, and and writing for the dig. So I'm happy with all that. The dig is the only thing that I do that I have to carry with me at all times because yeah. it's so yeah. time frame is deadlines. So to, yeah, yeah. It's, well, it's weekly. And luckily, I don't have to write an article every week. I only have to write an article every other week. Some people at best. don't know that it's weekly because it's just called the dig now. It used to be called the weekly dig. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should know that working there. But nah, yeah, you're good. Nah. You're good. You're a wizard. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I have to turn in the. Um, I have to turn in the uh, every week. I have to turn. Fuck! I didn't turn it in yesterday. I got to do it. T- that's another thing I got to do tomorrow. Edit that part out. Is uh, the uh, I I didn't turn in the show, show listings yesterday. Yeah. But did I? No, the article came out this week. Kill Martin came out this week. Yeah. So yeah, that's the thing is trying to keep up on that weekly schedule of it, and you know, it's it's the job that because I don't have an office. They have a spot. I don't go to it. I don't need to. I right. can. They were like, dude, if you need to work on yourself somewhere, I'm like, I mean, why would I bring my laptop here? I have right. it at home. You know, right. that's uh, the point of a laptop, and that's the point of this studio is to make me give me a space that is only work. Because if I try to work in my room, or if I try to work in my le- living room, or in the kitchen, it just it doesn't happen. Yeah. I get too distracted and nothing, nothing. Ever. Yeah. It's the way I've always been. I have to leave the environment. Yeah. But. Having a dedicated space for work is so good for productivity. Yeah. For me too. If I go to a coffee shop, I feel like there's an accountability there. You know, I don't have a home office, but like, or if I just go, like if I work in the living room instead of my, if I were and try to do anything productive in my bedroom, forget it, forget it. But yeah, coffee shop, bar, just to, you know, like that. See, coffee shop. I tried uh, when I tried to do writing from coffee shops years ago, and all I did was spend time walking to the counter buying cupcakes, yeah, or muffins, or whatever, yeah. <laughs> just try, eating pastries and going. Don't give me the Wi-Fi password. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get any work done, but I did put on a few pounds. Uh, uh, well, what what jobs have you had to do from where you got into work at home? Uh, or is it mostly just writing? Well, I do a lot of one-on-one workshopping, and sometimes that, that'll be through Skype or Google Hangout or FaceTime. Um, but 
most of my re- most of my heavy jobs have not. Uh, the last startup I worked for, the last job which kind of sucked, was a startup where um, they didn't. Nobody used their phones. Everybody communicated through Google Hangout, so you could work from home because anybody could access you through Google Hangout. Um, that was that was 2014. I worked there for. That's pretty advanced for 2014. Yeah, they were. Uh, they're making big moves, but I wasn't a good. I wasn't a good fit. <laughs> they uh, they were looking for like a quirky marketing person, uh, and it was a startup for like ed tech. But I have no education background other than teaching comedy, and I know which no, uh, is that well, education? Nope. No, yeah, <laughs> I can say for certain that it is not. Uh, and uh, I have no marketing background, and my but my direct boss was a former senior marketing VP and she hated me from the go. Like the two co-founders loved me and this woman who micromanaged me hated my guts from start. And mm-hmm. I was like, this is going to be fun. Do you think it had to do, like did they love you for the same reason she hated you because you're outgoing, you're, yeah, you're, I th- a, you're a boisterous, I th- jocular personality? Yeah, I think they thought I was going to be, we would merge, she and I would merge better, but we sat at a desk like this facing each other when oh. I did go to the office and we worked, we used exclude everything was Google docs, Google spreadsheets. And there'd be times when I'd be doing work and she'd be editing it live. And, uh, yeah, it's just not fun. <laughs> it's just not fun. And I wasn't a good fit. And, and, and I did like, I like, I like the company's mission, but I will never again, I will never get, no matter how desperate I get financially, I will never again go and I will never swallow my pride and go to an office to do things that I am not good at slash I do not love. Dude, uh, I, I keep thinking of every, every couple of months, I think of giving up the radio job just so I have something stable, yeah. something low key in an mm. office, but I don't know if I'd be able to shut my brain off enough to be a drone nine to five and then live my life out, outside of it. Like, yeah. like traffic reports is not exciting. I'm not even in the building with the FMs anymore. So I have literally no connection to radio whatsoever. And that's still more me than it is if I work in an right. office, but right. stress and pay and all that other bullshit that goes along with it. It's, it's getting to the point where I, I was like, I gotta, I gotta figure something else out. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm working for the, for pennies in radio where I could go to an office job and answer customer service calls all day and make twice it's what su- I'm making. It's such a curse, dude. It's such a, like, honestly, like it bothers me. I used to make, when I, I worked for, uh, H&M for years. I was their the district. bakery? No, the Swedish clothing company. Oh, okay. Uh, I was their district facility. Oh, manager. I'm thinking of H&S. And that's oh, yeah. in Baltimore. You yeah. would not have known what I was no, talking no. about. No, no. Uh, but anyway, I was their district facilities manager for New England and upstate New York. And I made really good money there. I had benefits. I had access to a car. I had my birthday off. I had six weeks paid vacation. Like, and the Fuck pro- you, six weeks. Fuck However, you. <laughs> it's European. The, the problem was I was on call all the time. Like, yeah. I was responsible for electricity, HVAC, like all of this important stuff in 25 stores. So my phone rang from 6 a.m. to 2 a.m. And, and it was thankless. And even though I had a nice title and I made good money uh, and I had access to a company car, like, I would have to bail on classes and shows so often that I, like, remember the last year was torture. Like, I was like, and that sounds like such a... I feel so stupid saying it because there are days where I crave those paychecks. I, I make sometimes monthly what I would make in a, in a paycheck. I, I'd get paid every other week, and sometimes I barely make that in a month now. And, I, and I'm like, oh, this is what you chose, and you love it. But that money, my, 
you know, performing, performing arts is a curse because there isn't money in it until you're with somebody. And all of us are like, almost like, I feel like there's a, there's a big chunk of people who are almost somebody's and yeah. it's not good enough. Right. Yeah. If you're, well, even almost somebody's make a livable wage. Like if you want to make a, a not extravagant wage, but a, a, a comfortable wage. Yeah. Yeah. You got to be a little more of a somebody. And right. That, that does suck so yeah. much. Yeah. Because we're because we all know these people who are supposed to be somebodies, uh, in itself to yourself is like I should be a somebody, but so should somebody else. Uh, that's yeah. just yeah, it is torturous. But uh, also tra- compare- worrying about the money because yeah. it makes what you do happen when you're not making the money doing it. Right, it, it makes it joyless. But it also like, I I I'm not a bitter person as you know, but I do I think I am less likely to be mad at somebody for not being talented than I am for for uh for them to have a lot of money and stand up is easier for you if you have a lot of money you can travel to whatever show you want you can apply to whatever festival you want you you don't have to be stuck as a you know a a regional comedian you know uh yeah you're happier with a lot it's easier to make friends when you have money you can afford to buy drinks at every show you can afford to you know rat you know you don't have to think about doing that second mic you can actually go because you have a car and you can yeah. give people ride like there's there's a lot to that and you know if there's anything i'm bitter about i'm bitter about i just wish you know people don't realize that having money gives you a lot more choices you know? yeah yeah well, even going further look money gives you the option to hey i'm just gonna go spend six hundred dollars on a thousand dollars on equipment and Start my own podcast yeah, yeah. where I hang out with right. comedians. Right, right. Or I'm going to go buy my uh, right. $1,500 camera and yeah. start making web skits. Right. Oh, I hate yeah. that word so much. But Skits. Ugh. It sounds like a medical condition. <laughs> like, <laughs> I have the skits. Yeah, I had a weekend of the skits. Oh, man, I'm sorry. Did you, uh, is, it, is, that, is that curable? It's like, no, it's uh, it's bacterial. It's, <laughs> it's not going away. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah, money does, it, money money we're not none of us are advocating money leads to happiness no but it does lead it helps. to comfort it a does and how it leads to comfort and it leads to options right yeah so uh and it's funny because i did this to my i have a great resume like it's a curse i actually uh you know <laughs> you i could go back to the corporate world and probably get a job uh but and get and make good money with great benefits but i don't ever want to it would be set that was my version of selling out it's like I feel I I actually love writing and performing and I love the struggle, uh, but and it's never going to go away. But th- I'd be lying to you if, if I told you that when I'm down, I don't think about screw it, back to the corporate world. Let's just do it. Let's just do it for two years. Just two years, right? Two years. Build yeah, up yeah, a little bit yeah. of 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 cush right. money. Right. Yeah, I, it's the same thing. And I was like, if I get that job for if I get that you know ninety thousand uh, dollar job at uh uh uh. uh Burlington. Yeah. Uh, it's called uh, Begins with an O. Oscorp. No, nope, that's yeah. not it. That's anyway. It doesn't <laughs> that's matter. Spider-Man, uh, right? Os- it's has something to do with printers and so- anyway. It doesn't matter. Uh, or computers. Uh, Oracle. Yeah. There's a fucking entry level sixty thousand a year job at Oracle. Damn. That I keep toying with because I have friends that work there, and it's like if I just do that for like two or three years, save up build up my comedy career then i can just quit that job and go to the road and 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 that, and then you're set dennis and then you could turn that over and you have right. a little cushion money in that right. way that cushion money gives you two years right. you know and of not having to work and that just is never going to happen no yeah because i they'd find me hanging from the, the fluorescent lights yep by yep. my tie just, yeah yeah 
Yeah. I mean, that's that's the thing. And you got to do what makes you happy. I remember when I quit H&M, I was driving to the Rockingham Park Mall in Salem, New Hampshire. And I knew on the way up, I was halfway up 93. And I was like, this, I'm going to resign today. And I got to the I got to the mall. I sat in the car, and it, using my corporate BlackBerry, I sent a month's notice. I gave a month's notice because I had a lot. And that work that my workload was never even close to finished. And I yeah, I don't regret it. That's one of the that was one of the scariest, but also like one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. And then I cashed out my four hundred one k, which was very stupid, but I needed to. I was like, I don't have a plan. And I cashed out my four hundred one k and lived on that. And then I freaked out again. And got a regular another corporate job because I went like I quit in I think June of two thousand eight, lived three or four months, and I was like I can't do this, and I got the worst corporate job of my life. I was a uh, I was a staffing manager for a temp agency, where I had to work five or six days a week from seven to seven wearing a suit and tie, what? and Why? I had to make cold calls to uh, this book of clients trying to sell them temp workers and. There would be times when I would be on a call with this somebody who didn't want to talk to me, and my boss would be giving me live feedback into my headset, and there'd be two people mad at me for two different reasons. <laughs> and I, I ended up getting kidney stones, and it saved it saved my life. Like I bailed on that job because they were trying to pressure me to come back sooner than my doctor's note said I should. And I was like, "That's illegal. I'm going to leave, and you're going to pay for unemployment." And they were like, "Okay." Yeah, that's 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 a good way to turn it. Yeah. Good. Well done, sir. Yeah, Cheers yeah. to you. Yeah, thanks to my kidneys, <laughs> which my doctor says are in good health now. So, yeah, I can't. Uh, I uh, I understand the the having two different voices being yelling at you at the same time because of doing IFB with TV stuff. Mm-hmm. So if you're not much experience, but I can imagine how nerve wracking that is. Because just to, people don't yeah. think about this. Every newscaster you see has a little earplug yeah. in there, and there's somebody in somewhere talking to them, giving while them live talking. feedback. Ugh. Yeah, not well, not feedback like information. Uh, yeah, it's they're 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 talking to you about stuff. But I've had that situation where they're like, uh, it's if you're in an interview, and I think Newsroom has a really great, not Newsroom. Uh, the Newsroom probably did a good. I'm not, that's what I'm not thinking of. But there was a really great version of this with that uh, networking or the movie Network Network. Yeah. Um, and I, I just recently saw that for the first time a couple months ago, like less than a year, about a year ago. And that where they're doing an interview and the, and the producer's talking to them and the, the interview is an, an argument and they're getting like, stop going down this direction or wherever it was. And they're just, you got that conflicting thing and it, that will drive you absolute mad if you're not, if you don't know what you're doing. Right. Like it takes a long time to get used to doing that year, th- you know, getting talked to yeah. in the year while you're still talking. Yeah. And you're just talking and not paying attention to that. And you're listening to that. And then you have to change it on the fly yeah. without doing one of these. Like you see it in every movie. They're like, uh, I'm getting some breaking news yeah. right now. And they put their fingers through their ear. And you're like, that doesn't happen in, in the real life. If that happens in real life, they're going to go, take your finger out of your fucking ear. Yeah, right, ah. right. <laughs> well, actually, it's like three voices, right? Because it's the person you're talking to. It's the person giving you the feedback. And then it's your inner critic freaking it, you know? Because yeah. I feel like when you're doing a stand-up set, you're in the moment but you're also you're also the next joke is on deck or the next setup yeah. is on deck so you're like yeah i love that when yeah. i when i know the material enough to where i can for lack of a better word go into autopilot tell the jokes and then think about what i'm going to yeah. say next right. or think about what i'm going to change on right, it like right. that's why i love being as loose on stage with my material as i am 
which may be to some of my detriment, but I'm so present and in the moment that I can't help but do something else at the same time. Like my brain has to keep keep working while I'm doing these jokes, and it I it I find a new tag every once every couple of months. I'll find a new tag to something like that's making this better. That feels good too to have find a stage a, a stage writing moment where you land a new tag because of just the way you did something, or even that you discover a whole new bit. Right. That's not like this only works in that one scenario. Like you just discovered a whole, I, I have a bit about the, you know, hearing the song superstition by Stevie wonder because it is a stage written bit. I was at an open mic, a guy played superstition. And before I was going up, I started thinking, it's like, what can I say about the song superstition when I get up there before I do my real material? And I turned to my, I turned to Jesse miles, who was my roommate at the time who, who lived with me and has yet to be on the podcast. <laughs> Sorry, well, I was saving him because there was a chunk of time where I wanted this show. I wanted to do interviews that are all like-minded right. uh, uh, jobs. So I was saving him for when I would do three or four medical professional jobs. Right, right. And that just never panned out because I don't have the time to be able to schedule week by week. So anyway, uh, I turned to him and I said, hey, what do you think about this, this, and this? I just gave him the highlights, the first like three jokes of it. And he was like, yeah, 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 yes. Went up there, doing the joke. Held the fucking closer in my head. Didn't tell him the closer. Did the joke. Bam, 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 bam. And then it's like, uh, uh, the only thing is, you know, fire off caps as he drives away. And then bah, I was like, oh, that's, that's my new, that's my new, mu- that's my new joke. That's two to three minutes right there. And it's built and built and built. But like just off the initial, he said something, I came up behind him. Yeah. And that's was, was born in the moment. And you can't get any more natural no. of a, of a, you know creation of a joke then it's my favorite way to build a bridge with an audience is to find a moment that just happened and make a joke about it and then it's like oh wow this guy it makes you seem a lot better than you are you know what i mean it's like <laughs> wow that guy's quick or clever and it's like well hold your hold that thought <laughs> hold that thought for when i try to do to, this again <laughs> i'm about to say some dumb stuff brace yourself it's that gonna, i was planning on yeah, saying yeah. that was <laughs> the stuff i wrote's not good the stuff i pretended Live, yeah. yeah the uh, doing the you know getting paid for your, your for your comedy work is. It seems like it makes life easier. I don't know. There's two podcasts that I listen to back to back. Um, one is uh, Tuesdays with Story, with Joe List, uh, who mm-hmm. you know former Boston comedian Joe yeah. List and Mark Norman. And then the other one I listen to, nobody's heard of this guy, uh, is the uh, the Road Podcast with JT Habersat. Okay, the reason I like listening to them because they're polar opposites. Not so much now, but when the two of them were opening for Amy Schumer and Louis C.K. on world tours, they're coming on their podcast and talking about, oh, we were at this five-star restaurant or five-star hotel in Paris, and then we went to this, and we did Madison Square Garden, and oh, my God, all this. And, like, they're doing these things, and they're like, oh, wow, that opening for the biggest comedians in the world. That sounds great. And then you listen to JT, and he's just interviewing the people he goes on the road with. He's a total DIY punk rock comedian. Uh, shout out to the Altercation Comedy Festival coming out in a couple months that turned me down. But anyway, <laughs> if you're near Austin, Texas in September, uh, is uh, he would just go on with, and they're driving around by themselves, doing fucking bar gigs and no clubs, just DIY shows. And, you know, he's also in the punk rock community. So a lot of his gigs are also just opening for punk rock bands and all this shit. And you're listening like, yeah, so we scrounged together $60 to share a bed at a uh, motel 
45 miles away from the venue and we could, didn't get an ounce of sleep because there was a crackhead screaming outside our window all night. And it's like, that sounds like my future. Yeah. And I, I like, that's just so depressing. Right. Right. Yeah. It's it. Comedy is weird. I don't you know. Every once in a while, it's, I, I think it's a curse. Honestly, actually, I just got for my uh, 40th. I got myself a tattoo. Yes. Did you see, Did you see this? Cla- I yeah. saw the pictures. Yeah, yeah. It's not colored in yet. We're doing that. Uh, it's a clown weeks. on a crucifix. It's, a, it's Bozo on a crucifix. And uh, yeah, I just feel like there's, there's so much people don't understand uh, and so much people want to tell you when they haven't the foggiest idea what they're talking about and the, the, the financial sacrifice and the time sacrifice and and most of us are never going to make it you know? and they, you have to really love it you have to really love it because uh, it's the only way the delusions will stay alive you know and, and it's the only way that you'll you'll keep doing it through heartbreak after heartbreak and you know you do, you have to have unlimited levels of pride to swallow now the uh you mentioned it before so let's go to that because that's going to probably be the point of the article that i'm going to try and reach uh is the teaching aspect yeah because yeah. you've been new comedy what 20 years my first stand-up set was in 97 yes yeah, so i wouldn't say yeah i did you're, a, you're I, same age as me but enough old enough to where there's a little bit of distance yeah but we're I, right in the same wheelhouse same thing with you me and rob cream I'm 37. You guys are both 40, I think, right? Yeah, I'll be 40 in July. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, we're all right around that circle, but I'm just at the edge of the circle on the age band. I um, I did my a couple of stand-up sets in Western Mass in 97. Then I went to BC, did mostly improv at BC. So I wouldn't say, I'd say I've been doing it for 20 years, but like I've been doing it aggressively for like 10 to 12. You know what I mean? I've been doing yeah. sh- multiple shows a week uh, for, you know, I don't know. Maybe more like 14. It's hard to say. I don't, you know, when I think about when I, I was better at improv first. You know, it took me a while to get what I would consider good or like consistent at stand-up. Yeah. Yeah, because when I moved here, you weren't, which was only five years ago, it seemed like you weren't doing as much stand-up as you are now. Yeah, well, I don't. And somewhere within that five, like closer to to when I, like after the first year I was here, that's when I started seeing you more and more and yeah. more and more. I don't know if it's a coincidence, but I feel like even us talking, you're like, yeah, I'm focusing on this right yeah. now. And that well, seemed that... to be your pull away from IB right around then, about well, four years, three years ago. Yeah, I stopped doing improv basically, yeah. and that that I, I for a while I was teaching improv and I was doing improv. Improv's like, especially if you're in a company cast at Improv Boston, you're rehearsing once a, once a week and you're performing at least once a week. Um, and I was in their national touring company for a few years and, um, yeah, that's a few gigs. So like, it's a time commitment. And so what you, you don't want to admit when you're also doing stand up is it takes away from your stand up, right? There are some skills that help your stand up, but if you know, you still get, you want to be on stage as much as possible. But yeah, in the last three years, I've definitely been like, dude, get out more. And I've definitely done that and it feels great. I'm getting, writing more material. I would love to have another album out in the next couple of years. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to make less excuses for myself. I'm just putting myself out there as much as possible. And it, it feels great. Well, when you started doing stand-up, you were, it was here in Boston, right? Because you were from Western Mass. Yeah, I mean, I did shows in Western Mass, but this, I, there's not much of a scene out there, and I didn't really get involved in what was out there. Um, when I really started doing... When, like when I would say I started doing stand-up, it was here. Yeah, I haven't really. I don't have any other represent. I lived in Mass my whole life. So, yeah. yeah. But what uh, what what brought you to Boston from uh, Western Mass? BC. Northampton, right? I, I went. To, I grew up in West Springfield. West Springfield. But okay. I went to Boston College. 
Okay. Yeah. So it was college that brought you out. Yeah. To and I just loved, I just loved, I always wanted to be in a city and I, as a kid, I loved Massachusetts, but I loved Boston. Um, in hindsight, you know, I, I could do everything I'm doing without BC. However, I did meet, uh, when I first got casted in Prof Boston in 2000, uh, most of Improv Boston was BC people. So BC had like a it's foot a in the life, door yeah. there. Yeah. So I met the artistic director, had already graduated from BC, but I met him at BC and kind of had a leg in there. And yeah, I did a lot of improv at BC. I did some, a few stand-up sets at BC when I was there. And yeah, it just stuck. It just stuck. But, you know, I'm not really a BC person. I wish, you know, I, I cherish the social relationships that were forged there and i i really liked the campus and i liked some of the classes but i don't like the debt that i still have 20 years later i don't like i don't like a lot of what the school stands for i'm not really a jock or a jesus guy i do like sports i do like thinking about theology but in many ways boston college is regressive uh what did you go to boston college for uh, I don't know. <laughs> I went, uh, I, I like to tell people I majored in crippling debt and I minored in not driving a Volvo. Uh, but I went. Were you an undeclared student? So I, I started undeclared. Here, here's what happened. I was um, lower middle class or upper lower class, whatever. I was pretty poor. And I got in. I wanted to be in Boston. I was a very smart kid because I was terrified of everything. So I was... Um, I was much more introverted than in high school um, until like my junior or senior year, I started to take risks socially and, um, but I was shy. So I studied, I was in national honor society and I applied to a bunch of schools in Boston and I was basically going to go to the one that gave me the most money. And that's what happened. I didn't have a plan. Like I really was riding the wave of what my grandparents and my mother wanted me to do. They were so excited that I got into BC and uh, there, there was some pressure there. Like I, you know, I wanted to, but I didn't really know why I wanted to. I love the campus, but that's not a reason to go to a school. I love the proximity to Boston, but it's not a reason. Um, so I didn't really figure out, I didn't really become a theater major until my junior year. And it's because I didn't like anything else. It wasn't because I was like, this is what I want to do. It's like, this is the only thing I like to do. <laughs> and now it looks like I did it deliberately. So like maybe everything happens for a reason, right? Like I was a theater arts major, philosophy minor when I graduated. That's and, perfect yeah, for the entertainment industry. Yeah, it's exactly. It looks like I did it on purpose, and maybe you know, I don't. I don't really believe in coincidence, but I, I'm telling you that it wasn't a plan. <laughs> yeah, it just happened, and uh, yeah, I came out of my shell at BC. I became more social. I became a little bit more shameless, a little bit more vocal, a little bit more willing to be vulnerable. Uh, I started talking to women. I was very, very introverted in that regard, and like, yeah. That's so the me that you know started to grow at Boston College. And he, I don't know if you've seen these pictures of me online. There's pictures of me like bleach chair and wallet chain. That that was my Boston Spikes, College yeah. phase. Yeah. I see. Yeah. I've seen a few of them yeah, of yeah. The, the Fred Durst, yeah, David yeah. J. Biden. Yeah. <laughs> I was big into corn, Limp Biscuit, uh, Jinko Jeans. Yeah. yeah, no, yeah, no yeah. doubt. 1995 through uh, 99 was scary for me. Yeah, and I, I would have fought you. you I would have fought you if you told me that was a phase. Like, no, it's not. <laughs> this guy liner is going to live forever. <laughs> my friends would do the uh my friends were those that, that part of my friends were that crowd too yeah. uh, and i was slightly into it but yeah. not not much but they would do the black nail polish and then the glow in the dark nail polish yeah. over it so you would see the yellow over the black and yeah i had a bike chain necklace i oh, wore yeah. my hair was 
you know, always a different color. Jenkos, a pair of shiny jeans that I loved very much. They were silver and shiny. Um, and I was that guy at BC. Like, I stood out. Like, you know, a lot of people didn't know my name, but they were like, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> we recognize that. I got... Many times on campus and at clubs, I got mistaken for the guy who was selling coke. Like a lot oh, yeah. of people just assumed I had cocaine because I looked like that. And now people assume I have cocaine because I act like this. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah uh, oh, geez. Yeah. Those, there were some bad fashion choices in the 90s yeah. that I was slightly a part of. Yeah. Not fully because I was more the punk rock guy. Yeah. But my, I was, uh, I lived in a conservative household that, Influenced me enough to go, hey, look, I like this music, but I don't need to do the dog chain and yeah. the spikes and yeah. uh, the leather jacket uh, enough. If, if I went to school closer to home, my family would have been like, knock this off. <laughs> but I was at, you know, I lived at BC. So. Yeah, you're on your own. Yeah. So, all right. So in, at BC is when you started with IB? Improv. Yeah, I, I auditioned for Improv Boston in 2000. I got cast. Um, and, or I got called back. I couldn't make the callbacks cause I had a wedding I was supposed to go to. And then I kind of like, they were just like, you're in this cast, just come to rehearsal. So in 2001, officially I started performing in their Thursday night cast. It was called Maestro. It was every Thursday at eight. And it was before the great and secret show, the Walsh brothers stand. Yeah. Like it was the only stand up at the time in any, uh, way, shape or form at improv boss. And is this back when it was in Inman square? Yeah. That's why I moved to Inman square because I wanted to be closer to that. I knew I'd be there at least a couple times a week. And I just went, I went balls out with improv. I was doing three or four improv shows a week. Um, and I loved it. And I don't regret it, but it's, it's not like in terms of like where I want to go with my career now, um, standup is much more appealing to me just because it's more selfishly. It's about control. You know, I can control the choices I make. I can control what shows I do and what shows I don't do. Um, there's more money to be made in stand-up. And there's, you know, I, I know enough improv where I, I'm confident in my ability that I could pick it up again if I had to. Yeah. Uh, I had a thought on something I wanted to do later. Yeah. I wanted to write it down. Yeah. And now I forgot what I wanted to say while I... <laughs> Distracted the microphones to write down. You what have I multiple voices angry at you at once. Um, Walls Brothers is a show. It was uh, something to get. I'll do this from time to time, and that's why it yeah. cuts out, which I don't care about. Uh, I'm good enough, at least when I do camera work, this doesn't happen. Yeah. Uh, but the thing I wanted to ask you about was continuing with. Uh, you said how. So you you mentioned there a second that they were that you were in the Thursday night cast. Yeah. So and that's what I know like UCB Growlings all this they have different days of the week classes that progress. Yeah. Is that how IB was cuz it doesn't seem like that's how they are now. Well, IB's a diff IB is such a different beast than it was then. Back in the day, to give you an anecdote that I use when I meet newer people in that community, back in the day if you saw someone in the green room you didn't know, it was a big deal. And now, if you're there on a big deal in the bad way. No, it's like, who is that? What oh, cast okay. are they in? Where are they from? Are they from New York? Oh, oh my God, are they from I, Chicago. I was thinking over, it's like, what are you doing yeah, here? Yeah, Get no. out! Don't touch my improv shoes. Those are those are my Chuck Taylors. Uh, no, uh, but like there were the community was like 50 people back then, and the move to Central in 2007 and eight. Our com the community is like 2,000. It's it's incredible now. They have. You know, their comedy school is like five or six hundred students a session. They've got like 
30, 30 something shows a week. And it's absurd. Like there's a lot going on there now. It's, it's, it's a lot. Um, but back in the day, there was a third, there was a Thursday night show called Maestro. It was a John Stone structure. There was a Friday night show called theater sports. And there was a Saturday night show called main stage. Then there were 10 o'clock shows. 10 o'clock on Thursday was the great and secret show. 10 o'clock on Fridays was like the showcase show. There'd be a rotating every two months. There'd be like a rotating kind of, you know, themed show. And then, uh, Saturday nights at 10. So, oh, maybe main stage did two shows on Saturdays. That's what it was. So yeah, there wasn't much going on and it was in Inman. So we were used to you know, in the summertime, on my Thursday night years, I was in that cast for, I think, five years. There'd be months where we'd cancel two or three shows in a row because it's in Inman. It's still, even now, when it's Inman's being developed, path, yeah. it's off the beaten path. It's like, you know. Yeah, when it comes to the T, the only way to get there is by a bus, which it amazes me how many people refuse to take a bus. I was that way. I was stupid. Like, you get, it's it's an arrogance. It's stupid. The bus is such a reach. Mm. I think it's, it's, and then when I was like, Oh my God. But as if it's any different than the T. It's not. Like, it's, it's, not. Just, it's just not as like the T for some reason carries a level of glamour. Exactly, I don't know yeah. what that is it's because that, it's not glamorous. Yeah. It's that love song to, to subway trains, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And the bus is no different. It's just not underground. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's a tighter, tighter space. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a little so, yeah. more fabric on the chairs. Yeah. A lot more stains. So, yeah, I think, uh, you know, that's why. That's what built my. By the way, the new, the old IB space. Just today, a convenience store is building in there. I think they open tomorrow. There's a convenience store that was over by Punjabi Daba that moved over, and now it went from storage for Christina's ice cream, and now it's going to be a convenience store. Uh, so it's been because uh, it's been in Central Square for what twelve years. We moved there, two thousand seven or eight. So ten years. So ten yeah. years. Okay. Yeah. So for ten years, it's been nothing. Yeah, ten years. It's been storage for Christina's. Yeah. yeah. And uh, now it's going to be a convenience store. That was two doors over. It's just sliding yeah, it was, down the street. It was two blocks down, and they just moved because there's going to be a dispensary moving in there. Oh uh, yeah, there that that whole thing's happening too. That is the thing I I pay the least attention about, but the dig can't help but not pay attention to that whole yeah, thing. Which yeah. if that's their thing, go for it. Yeah, but it's not mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the that's the cross they're willing to die on. I'm like, cool for cool. I don't I don't have anything like that, but. Uh, when did you start teaching? Um, I started doing stand-up workshops in 2004 and five. Um, I led them. I wouldn't call myself a teacher back then because I just wasn't doing it enough to do that. I was working out of a Greg Dean step-by-step -step to stand-up work, you know, uh, how to write stand-up comedy book. And, um, eventually I was doing that for a couple years and the BCAE was hiring a stand-up instructor. And I was like, hmm. I'll poke around about that, and they brought me in, and they took me took me on, and that stirred some stirred some shit. BCE, uh, the, the the Boston Center for Adult Education. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and that's, uh, so uh, I taught there for ten years, maybe eleven years, and after a couple years of doing that, after a year or so of doing that, IB's like, let's do that here. So we were teaching stand up at IB before we even had really any stand up, which when we moved, I was like, we got to fix that. So we did, and we had a, a week. We had a. We started off with an every other Thursday night stand-up show, and that became Stand-Up Sundays, which became The People Show. And then eventually other shows broke out. The Comedy Lottery, Battle Royale. And that's the that's basically the stand-up stand uh, history at IB. I mean, the Walsh Brothers were doing stand-up, but their show was a, an amazing variety show. I mean, yeah. sketch comedy, stand-up comedy. Um, but yeah. 
I started teaching way before I should have. Now, is that because you wanted to, or did they tap you because they knew no, they didn't know anybody else who could do it? Oh no, I wanted to. I blame myself, but also they were like, "Oh, we should teach some stand up classes." I was like, "Yeah, we should also have some stand up shows." And uh, but like, I was always. I will I will say I was always a capable teacher. Even I always knew what good stand up looked like, um, and I never. I never let my delusion bleed into students. I think the one area that I was, that I, I used to mess up when I was younger teaching was I didn't want students to, I wanted their first show to be the showcase. I wanted their first show to be a warm crowd. But now I'm like, nah, go to Mike's now. Go to Mike's now. Like, feel what it's really like. See if this is for you. I don't, I don't, I don't bullshit anybody now. Now I'm very, <laughs> like I say in week one now, I'm like, I'm fun but firm. If yeah. I if I see a pattern that I think is problematic, I'm going to call you on it. And I tell people, I can't teach you how to be funny. I can tell you what I think some best practices are. The rest is up to you, right? We're going to we'll workshop jokes together and we'll put together a set over the course of these two months and then you'll showcase it, right? And that, that's pretty much it. Like I just guide a classroom because you can't, you certainly can't teach people uh, how to be funny. Like some people have it also i'm sure you know this like there are some comedians who are hilarious on stage not so much off stage yeah and there are some people who are hilarious off stage not so much on stage and that's a that's an interesting thing because a lot of the people that struggle in class they're usually 40 to 60 year old alpha males who have been told their entire life by all of their circles that they're the man mm-hmm. and they're the funniest at the bar they're the funniest on their you know their intramural softball team. They're the funniest in their family. And then they show up in my class and I tell them, well, you got a lot of work to do. You know, (laughs) I would never say it that bluntly, but they realize that, you know, stuff that worked when they were kids doesn't really work now, you know? And, uh, yeah, those are usually the people that have the toughest time, but you, yeah, the living room, funny people. Yeah. Yeah. But I love it because most people, the people who put in the effort can make it happen. I truly believe that if you put in the work, you can do this. You you may not be you may not be a known comic, but you can you can put together a good set. Yeah, you may not be a Jim Gavigan, but right. you could be a right. um, uh, Ardia Gennaro. Mm-hmm. You can be a pharmacist, <laughs> <laughs> pharmacist yeah, comedian yeah. shtick. Uh, so it, it, yeah, it's the the classes. I don't know. I I often think about the teaching aspect and I can understand, you know, doing it this long, 10 years, yeah. you've lost the romance for it. It's like, look, here's, you know, we, we all start coming going, this is an art and this is amazing. And I still see it with people's Facebook posts where it's like every post is something about being a comedian. And it's, it's like, it's more of a science. I mean, I appreciate the artistic side of it, but like, here are the things that you need to do. Yeah. You know, and you got to do them. Right? You got to write as much as you as you can. You got to perform as much as you can. You got to record your sets. You got to listen back. You got that's when your inner critic matters, matters right there, right? Um, but so many people that the two Rob and I were talking a couple years back. Rob the, Green. Yep, Rob Green, uh, who teaches right now. Um, the teachers are Kelly McFarland, Dan Crown, Tookie Cavanaugh, mm-hmm. Rob Crean, and Kathy Ferris. Uh, David Thomas will be teaching soon, but. Uh, anyway, Rob Crean and I were like, what are what are the benefits? And the benefits are there's that week-to-week accountability, right? Um, if you're somebody that struggles to write, to hold yourself accountable, if you're somebody that struggles to go to mics, this is this is going to do it. We're going to tell you to do it. We're going to help you do it. And then you've got a show date. Like, you're going to do a show, right? Plus, where else can you get 12 other opinions? Where else can you get a 12-person workshop, right? 
Uh, and you're also going to learn, we, we believe that it takes away about a year's worth, maybe even two years worth of mistakes that you'd make at open mics. Like, don't ever do this. Don't ever do this. Don't ever do that. Like learn from the mistakes we've seen and made ourselves. And, uh, yeah, I don't, I completely understand when people shit on stand-up classes. Completely understand it. If I thought they, in fact, when people say, should I take a class? I'm like, well, what do you want to do? Right? I said, I said, you could just go and do mics. Right? What is your goal? And if I see that their goal could be achieved just by doing mics, I'll be like, you don't need my class. Just send me, you know, do a mic, record it, send me the clip and I'll, you know, I'll tell you what I think. I'll tell you, maybe, I mean, it can't hurt, but like, if you could just go, if you're confident enough to just go out and do mics, do that. Yeah, I I see the the discussions in the Facebook groups yeah. and the Reddit groups yeah. and all those forums and stuff. It's like, is a class worth it? And then you got the people who are dark. It's like, no, it's a scam. Yeah. Get ripped. No, they, that it can't be taught. And mm-hmm. other people's like, yeah, I totally learned and I'm doing this. And I just let it go. I'm not going to tell you, yeah, but it won't hurt hurt at all to That's take right. it. That's I right. think it's great to take certain workshops. I think that's fundamental. Like if you're already doing comedy, there's no reason why you should not take somebody's workshop during a festival yeah. or something you like or whatever, just to learn different techniques and experiences. And, and, and also let's be honest, networking is a big part of this. industry right. too. So going to those things and networking is also as important as, you know, learning how to do the, the three, uh, three example punchline. Right. Uh, so, right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's the other thing, too. You come out of a class with 12 people that you've worked with, right? Now, and 12 very, for IB also, very diverse, I'm sure. Yeah. Because yeah, they yeah. push diversity, which is a good thing, and I'll talk badly about that later, but it's good that they have a broad range of people that, uh, a spectrum of people that they, they accept. Sure. Which is and, great, and especially with the classes. Yeah. Diversity aside, though, you have this comfort like this bubble of people you can approach them the mic scene with right an open mic is a lot less daunting when you go with four people from class yeah right you've got that support system you're not alone i mean open mics are scary they're scary to me and i've been you know like they're like you go like they're they're objectively not fun they're not supposed to be you know it's like it's the gym and yeah and you know like one of my favorite things is just is describing mics as not shows they are shows in sheep's clothing, right? Like they're the gym. That is such a great way yeah, to say yeah. it. Shows in sheep clothing. Yeah. They're like, this is not a show. Like don't go, like when you're at the gym, you're not racing the person on the treadmill next to you. Have a goal. Have a goal. Like the goal doesn't have to be groundbreaking. Just my goal is to do the Middle East. My goal is to, right? My goal is to make eye contact with this audience that does not seem consensual, right? And power through that. Video record it to check yourself. Now it's measurable. You know, my goal is to work out all of my verbal tics. I say like. I don't want to say like for this three minutes. Record it. Bam, you did it. Now you have something measurable. And even if zero people laughed, you feel productive. And so many people go in there trying to crush it, right? Like you're not gonna. You're not gonna crush it. Or they're wearing the Johnny Carson suit the yeah. the first time. You're like, yeah. you're expecting a brick wall and a right. spotlight, and you're yeah. like, no, dude, no. that's not gonna happen. You're here. in the corner at a coffee shop. Uh, nobody cares that you're here. Yeah, the first time I did a mic, I didn't know the difference between a book show and a mic. It was called Daddy-O's. It was a coffee shop on Worthington Street in Springfield. Oh, that's too cool of a name for a coffee yep. shop. Daddy-O's? Yeah, it was called Daddy-O's. Oh, it was too wait. Cool. It was 1997. Yep. Uh, Big yep. Bad Voodoo Daddy's. Yep. There you go. Yep. And uh, I didn't swing know- Swing revival. <laughs> I didn't know what a mic was. I didn't know the difference. I just didn't realize it's a show in sheep's clothing. So I invited people. I invited my mom and my sister and my aunt came. 
And very common. I ate shit. I mean, I didn't shit. I, you don't bomb at a mic. You just do a mic. It was all comedians and my mom, my sister, and my aunt. And I remember leaving terrified, upset. And my mom put her hand on my back and said, I don't think this is for you. My comedy might not be for you. And I've been writing mom jokes since. <laughs> <laughs> my, uh, I did stand up off and on for a number of years. And I uh, workshop, a uh, private workshop with comedian friends of mine, their stuff. And if I wrote yeah. something like here, take this, go use it. I'm not going to do it. But I wasn't doing it myself that often. If I end up doing an open mic, it was like all day of top of the head improvised shit just because it wasn't i knew er, on an early age that this was a job that could be done uh which i always find interesting when i listen to these things when people are like oh yeah man i didn't realize comedy could be a job and that there was people that did it but i always realized it at a young age um and i knew the course was 10 years before at best 10 years before it's before you're making a comfortable uh, before you're quote unquote successful at it before you're you're doing it uh for realsies and i just at the time didn't want to put that time into it so i put all the focus into radio thinking that let me get my radio career instead of trying to start two careers at the same time right focus on the radio career once that's established never happened uh or on air at least uh and then move on to the stand-up thing yeah there was a part of my brain that said it's probably going to be easier once you're more established there right in radio but that wasn't the objective and once i realized radio wasn't for me I was going to move on. I finally took the the plunge back into stand up full. I say full time. Right. Because that's, I don't know how to say, but the way you said aggressive, that's how yeah. I have to start saying it's where I'm, I'm going to mics. I'm, I'm working on material. I'm creating you an have goals, right? And yeah, you're not just- so when I went out to one of the open mics, bringer, two person bringer, lax bringer, because he was like, I like, please just try to bring two people. Right. It's a two person bringer, finger right. quotes, uh, down the street from my apartment. And I did it. And I bombed. I ate a huge plate of dick. And I was using material that I did on the radio show, morning show that I was doing at the time. I just expanded it and did it. And I went outside and I was like, oh, I used to be so much better at this. And I'm sitting outside smoking a cigarette, just depressed. And the guy walks in and he's like, look, you said you haven't been on stage in years. Uh, it's if you came up here and you were amazing, then I would fault you because you were wasting seven years of your time not being on stage. Or whatever, the, whatever it was, three right. years, whatever. Uh, you know, last time I was on stage, I don't remember. There's the number ten and a combination in there that right. is, is what sticks in my head. Um, and it's like the fact that you bombed means that you have room to work, and that's fine. That's great. And he's one of my uh, closest comedy buddies, the guy that ran that open mic, uh, a non-comedian who ran an open mic. Right. And he's one of my uh, confidants that I go back to a lot with material and questions and and stuff. Uh, so yeah, but I've never had the the situation where somebody goes. Maybe this isn't for you. I just had somebody go, yeah, you sucked. But if you were good at it, then you were wasting time. So you're not wasting time. Good luck. I grew up so blue collar that my family, this, I wish I had known. I was one of those people that never, I took the arts for granted because it just wasn't something my family did. You know, like most of, like my grandparents met at AT AT&T where they worked their entire life. Uh, My uncle worked at AT AT&T almost his entire life. You know, my, my, you know, everybody I, in my family had like some sort of blue collar job. My dad's been a machine worker for his entire, almost his entire adult life. Uh, so it was never taken seriously. And even by myself, even after I had been doing comedy, like when I was at H&M, I was like, oh my God, I can actually, I can try this. And I knew it was a financial kamikaze job, but, but I, but 
that's that's what had to happen. You know, it's like I am going to go into major debt. What age do you think you were when you figured out working in the arts was a career? Because mm. I know there was never, I can never not remember a time that knowing actors were a job. Thirty. I think I was really? like, honestly, I, wow. and this is, this is honestly, this is when I, when I have the battles about nature versus nurture, this is where I get mad at my nurture. I'm like, man, if I had just like my, my parents wouldn't have discouraged me. They love that I do comedy, but it was just have a backup plan, have a backup plan. You're so smart, Dana. You're so, you could do, oh, that H&M job was so, you could always fall back on your resume or, or your college degree. And it's like, no. I hate that. I'm only here once. I don't want to be a corporate schlub. I don't want to live for dollar signs. You know, like I feel like you can't make a difference in that kind of rat race, you know? And that's, that's ultimately my ulterior motive is I want to use this stuff for good. Like I want to actually have a voice enough that people listen to and not just to make them laugh, but to like inspire them to do the same type of shit. So, so corny. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's, I don't, I'm going to say this word in a non-pejorative way, but it's what you're saying right there is a very stereotypical thing behind a lot of people, why they got into comedy and I, or common practice. That was the word that I would use. That's not, uh, that does not have a negative connotation when I say, yeah, (laughs) uh, now that I think about it, but that's very, it's very typical. And that's where I always am confused a little bit, uh, as a, as a performer, because like I said, I can never remember a time where I didn't know that this was a job that somebody could do. It just wasn't the job that I was going to do at the moment until I started doing it full time. And it's I find it so interesting. So many people had that same exact thought of of uh, I hey, I can make a life out of this, not as even as I'm at the point where I can switch over and make a living at it. They were like. Oh, you can do that as a job. Sign me up, and I will take ten years of training to get to that job. Right. Whereas I'm going. Oh, it takes ten years to get to that job. Pass. I'll do something else instead. Right. And, but it, I was acting from a kid. I was doing all yeah. these things, and my parents never. There was one conversation that my mother had with me about a backup plan, uh, and that was when I uh, started going to college for for radio, and my mom was like. But after you get this degree in radio and television production, what can you do with it? Right. You might want to think about something more practical. I'm like, well, I can get a job in radio, get a job in TV. There's thousands of positions in these in these two fields. But also outside of that, I could get a job at a recording studio. Right. I can manage, I'm already managing. Uh, I'm starting to manage a band now. Like it's uh, it, there's so much that I could do with all this stuff. And, and, and I think it's very practical. And she was like, okay yeah. if you're sure yeah. like that was the only closest to a conversation that i ever had and uh i can I, you know i love hearing people who say oh my parents were so supportive like yours like the, they keep doing it you can do anything blah blah you're doing great etc etc my parents i never or i hear the stories where they're like you're wasting your life kid my parents were neither of those two they yeah. were just the middle of the road apathetic towards like that's what you want to do that's fine my father told me Maybe once or twice. Look, do whatever you want. I'll still love you. I don't care. Like, be a trash man. I don't give a shit. Just you're my son. Yeah. yeah. But it wasn't like heart to heart. It was yeah. more of the do whatever. Yeah. I don't care. I'm it's fine. I'm your dad. I love you. You're fine. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> like that's the, the the growing up was the the like you have uh, tiger moms yeah. and and sports dads. I didn't have either of those. They were just like 
right, that's what you want to do. Like my mom would help with costumes and stuff if needed. And, and my dad would show up to sporting events and then just leave without saying anything to me. Like he would watch my football games and then just go home and I'd still have to walk home by myself. But it's like, he would like, Hey, congratulations. Yeah. You won. But he wouldn't be like waiting at the signs. I'm like, great, great job, job yeah, son. Yeah. Like not once has my father ever cheered from the sidelines. Wow. From anything for me, not because he was disappointed, because he right. was like, "Oh, I don't want to raise my voice." <laughs> or it's like when I did wrestling, he goes, "I hear everybody yelling things. I have no help whatsoever. I got nothing for you. I can't. Mm-hmm. I can't help. I'll I, just sit here and watch. I am here. <laughs> that's that's half of it, right? He's yeah. There. And, and sometimes he would just um, like, "Hey, are you coming to the game Saturday?" He's like, hmm. "Nah." Like, all right, that's the end of the conversation. Sure. Yeah. It's weird because I was so shy. I think I'm a learned extrovert. I, two qualities that I are objectively great qualities hampered my early comedy career and hard work and loyalty. Like I learned, I was smart because I was afraid to fail. So I read books and I, I studied and I did well because I did not want to let people down. And if somebody, if I liked somebody, I was loyal to them. And early on in my professional life and in my comedy, like I was, I'm, I was super loyal to Improv Boston. Not saying that was a bad thing, but like that's where most of I'll my work happened. You know, I like to no, dig on that place as much as I sure, can. Sure, sure. I mean, yeah, I, I, I could probably isolate a couple things that were bad about that. But I mean, the biggest one is that I, I didn't focus enough on stand up when I could have when I was younger. But that, you know, that's just how it went. But like, with jobs, I was loyal to. I was probably at H and M for three years too long. With every job, I've just put in too much time. Like I could have. I just wish. I mean, you can't go back in time, but I wish I had wrapped my head around what could be of a comedy career earlier. And but I feel young. It's not going away. You know, I'm still. I'm still doing shows. I'm still writing. I still feel pretty inspired about it. So uh, no matter what my ups and downs are, you know, forty. 40 is the new 18. <laughs> so you taught uh, at a, let's go back to teaching, talking about that. You taught at a adult center. Yep, but Boston and, Center and for I, Adult Education. Center for Adult Education. So it was people, what, 40 and over or 65 and up? You think about the BCAE was you never knew who you were going to get. And a lot of those people were just looking to find a date. A lot of those people had already taken their wine tasting class and their, you know, and their uh, cooking classes. So they end up in front of me. And uh, they're in the gambit of all yeah, the daytime activities. Some of my earliest students still do stand up from the, like uh, Scotty Lombardo was one of my early BCAE students. Dave Decker, he does a lot of shows on the North Shore, in New Hampshire. He was one of my early. But, it, you know, I would say the people who take it at IB are more leaning into taking it seriously. The people at the BCAE could have been, you know, were any number of, you know, weirdos or adults looking for. But what's the age range of that place typically? Um, like you're not going to get a 22 year old there, right? Um, they don't exclude you. Okay. Yeah, they don't exclude you. I don't I'm think thinking you... like you're doing it in an old folks home. No, That's it what, wasn't a senior center. No, no. Um, you, I think you would just have to be 18. Yeah, and okay. I, I, but but the average age over there was probably I would say you know mid 30s, but but okay. not That's always. That's younger than I expected. But not always because the, the there were classes over there. I mean, it's in the South End, so it's in a trendy spot, and. Uh, you know, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that it was it, it it was exclusive age wise. In fact, you know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, no, there were definitely some some twenty somethings that would take that class because there aren't 
there aren't a lot of those classes. And before we started actually teaching them at IB, I was probably, no, because I've been at IB teaching for about, I think I was only at the BCAE for a year before I started at IB. Um, but the people that take it at IB are much more leaning toward comedy. Like comedy is actually something that is their specific interest and they're pursuing it. Whereas at the BCAE, they're like, eh, I might meet a girl. I've already taken all the other specialty classes. I don't want to swing dance. (laughs) No, but, but I will say my favorite thing about teaching is, is that you do get a, you get people from all walks of life. I've taught CEOs. I taught a guy who was a CFO for a major company who nobody in his life knew he was doing that. He's like, this is a secret. Nobody, my family doesn't know where I am. My company doesn't know where I am. I'm doing this to improve my public speaking. My family doesn't know where I am. I had to start an affair just to keep up appearances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. this is my girlfriend. Um, And, uh, you know, I've taught people of all abilities, all backgrounds, you know, all walks of life. It's it's wonderful. I have, I've, I've taught, you know, outside of IB. Right now I'm teaching... I don't think, know if you know this. I got hired in the computer science program at MIT. Nope, I don't know this. Uh, so this one, this past session, semester, they call them at MIT or at any university. <laughs> uh, a professor and advisor in the grad department of the computer, or in the computer science department, hired me to work with his postdocs and research fellows to teach my stand-up workshop there for a full two, two months, and they crushed it. So uh, we're working on a curriculum to do it twice a year in the pre-dissertation, postdoc, um, or uh, grad program in the computer science department. So that's pretty sick. Is it yeah. mostly to like teach them a like a public speaking skill? Uh, oh, one detail that's important: these are all people heading on the professor track. So so they're going to be in front of a classroom, and many of these folks are academics who have not done any sort of public speaking, and yeah. many of them are very introverted so this is great Uh, and this is kind of you know this is the kind of work i like to do where it's like okay here are the skills it takes to perform and teach comedy and here's how they can help you in other departments of life so so yeah this is this is a new newer development and uh it's awesome it's really exciting uh oh my god you know i'm gonna title this dana j bine mit professor like that's (laughs) sure sure uh i mean it's still yeah i i i'm really excited about it uh, I don't know how how it's going to like it could be groups of people from like with the we had coffee a couple weeks ago it could be people 26 20 to 60 people but their hope is that uh, it becomes a part of this grad program before it, they uh, they call them uh, pre dissertation ABDs any all but dissertation uh, and so yeah it should be a perk of that program That's, how did they find you was it through uh, IB or Friend recommendation of a, friend of a friend yeah friend of a friend knew i was i would i did one-on-one workshops and um yeah and i did some one-on-one workshops with a couple of guys my first one-on-one workshop was an iranian postdoc who uh worked with me for 10 weeks one-on-one and he ended up getting hired at the uh, university of manitoba and he took to it really well one-on-ones are hard because they have to if they don't buy into what you're selling these people are busy these students are so busy and uh, if they don't buy into what you have to offer, then it can be a struggle. Um, but that's why you get paid. You try to you try to help them. Um, but if they, if they're into it, they can take some giant steps. They can really improve their public speaking. They loosen up. They start to allow themselves to be. It's hard to be vulnerable when you're interviewing for some of the best schools in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to be vulnerable when your whole life you've been punished for being vulnerable. So. 
you know, for the last 20 years. I've when you're been, hiding from, from public vulnerability. Yeah. You're like, which no, no. most of the world does. They're hiding from well, that as, at all yeah. situations. The hardest part is like my, the first thing I told this group that I just taught was you are required to fail. That's a sentence you probably haven't heard in a long time, but in comedy, you are required to fail. You will fail every show and you won't know how you're going to fail, but you will. Not everything's going to work. And that's a requirement of this program. I know that's scary. You will not always have the answers. And there, you're, you're the last, you know, 20 years of your life that's been the opposite of what the work, of the work you've been doing. So, um, so yeah, it's really exciting. And what's most exciting is that to me, I love that people are catching on to the fact that, you know, the theater arts and performing arts can help people really unlock some parts of themselves they didn't know they had and help them be bigger and better in social situations or professional situations or even just you know, mental health situations. That's a very uh, improv uh, perspective of teaching. Yeah. Is that finding where I feel like when you have a stand-up, per, a person who's only a stand-up, teaching only a stand-up cl- class either on their own or at, at, at clubs, that's only a club, uh, you know, Laugh Boston has I- IA, yep. which we're going to talk about that, uh, has uh, IA, Um. Where they can focus on both, you know, their you know, IB teaches everything, and they, they, it's a broad spectrum where they can reel people in. I think that the the comedian side of teaching goes let's uh, let's find the person who's going to be a stand up. That's what we're uh, is is we're trying to draw in the person that wants to do this. Whereas the improv side of it goes, let's take everyone and tell them how this will help them, which is great, uh, and it's good. It also, I think, has led to a culture, in my opinion, in the improv community of, um, of, uh, I don't want to say cheating, uh, of, of, it's led to a bad culture, I think, in improv, where it's made their audience their students and their students the audience. The cyclical, cyclical cycle that they happen to have that everybody in the audience is a prospective student and all prospective students should be audience members. That's a good capitalistic model, don't you think? Uh, yeah. For capitalism wise, yeah, yeah. yeah. like yeah. money wise, that's a great model. Right, right. When I, it comes to in, the integrity of I do the think, art and of art, it kind of feels sickening sometimes I, to me. I think this is going to sound mean. What I like about stand up is that talent stands out. Yes. Not that it doesn't stand out in improv, but like, you know. I want inclusion for all for every reason. I want people to feel included, but I think that you know I think if you have too much delusion, you're not going to make any progress. You 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 with improv when a show's over, it's toilet paper, right? It's done. You know, you you get the notes, it's done. And then the next show, you might pick up your bad habits again. With stand up, if your bad habits continue, you stop getting booked. You start, you know, like not to say that people don't get managed out of cast, not to say, but like, yeah, that's why I like stand. I like them both, but to me, stand up, I have more control. I have, I, I can set goals and and find my own way to achieve them. I can, um, you know, I can be my own manager. I don't have a director, Uh, but yeah, it's it's. uh, 
but I do love my improv background because it's informed, like, you know me, I, I'm, I'm crunchy. I like people most of the time. I'm real. Like when I don't like people, they know. But, but, uh, but I do think that when it, when it comes to teaching, even with standup, you know, when and when not to use kid gloves, you know, like I had a guy in a class not long ago, try to joke about suicide and his failed attempts and it didn't go well. And he clearly was too close to the project and there were no punchlines and it upset some people in class. And I had to take a moment with that and be like, Hey, thanks for your courage. That sounds tough. Right. Uh, and I had to deal with like, Hey, a few people in class are crying. Let's talk about that. Right. And so it, it becomes like without my improv background, if I was just a guy writing setups and punchlines, that'd have been not to say that I couldn't handle that, but like my, tr- my training and my teaching experience really helped me be able to deal with that situation in a way that felt productive. And then the class got closer because of it. Like there was a, an organic group hug at the end of that class. Like he didn't do anything wrong. As far as he knows, that was stand up, right? Like yeah. as far as he knows, like, and, uh, you know, one of the things that comedians forget is if you want to do things that are potentially triggering, the audience will have a say. Yeah. Yeah. They will be triggered and yeah. you have to deal with it. Yeah. And that's, yeah. Uh, well, it's also the, the old adage. If you listen to enough stand up comedy, people talk about stand up comedy, which you can do in this day and age. Like you can have a whole master class of stand up comedy at actually, there is a master stand master class taught by Steve Martin, which or, is insane. Uh, yeah. Steve right? Martin. Yeah. That he teaches a class on comedy, but I saw that you, on a Facebook ad yeah. and you can go out there and, and you know, that trope of, I say it all the time. I'm sure other people have said it. It's like, if you're not writing a suicide joke, then you're not doing, then you're not, then you've never written a joke as a comedian. Like it's like, we write like Ben quick and I get together and we just do suicide. We get in the car driving to our show and we'll just do suicide jokes over and over and over again and laugh our heads off at him, knowing that we are both. And I'm not speaking for Ben, but I know uh, he, he'll speak for himself, but him and I both know we are very like him and I are, are moments away from being, uh, pulled into a van into a straitjacket, and our shoelaces taken away from us and yet we still find so much comfort in joking about suicide uh making suicide jokes that yeah it, and it can be rough that yeah. you know th- what keeps us from doing it i'm literally telling my therapist this right currently at this moment is like what keeps me from doing it a the pills thanks a lot Yum. but secondly is that i have that outlet to talk yeah. about it and that keeps even though my head's still going on it, I know that I can veer away from it and then it's not the answer because I can talk about it openly instead mm-hmm. of keeping it on the inside and just dealing with it, dealing with it, dealing with it and going and eventually getting Stockholm Syndrome to my own depression. Wow, that's a sentence I should keep yeah. for something. Damn. That was a brilliant... I'm not going to toot my own horn, but that was a brilliant Stockholm Syndrome to my own depression where I fall into like, you know what? I get to the point where I'm like, you know what? You are right, Brain. Slice. Yeah, yeah, right. Almost yeah. every, I think 90% of stand-up sets end with a f- form of a suicide joke. Yeah. People say, I see the light. I'll leave you with this. Here's a note. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's my time. Thank you very much. Right? Like, to me, that's, that's the stand-up set. Oh, my God. I just realized that, yeah, uh, they're giving me the light is the epitaph on a tombstone yeah, now. Yeah, I'll leave you with this. It's the epitaph. Uh, oh, but uh, all right. Let's talk since we opened up on it a little bit. Um, we, you and I have had the conversation about uh, IB's finances, and I know they're a 501c3PO nonprofit, nonprofit yeah. whatever that letter number combination is. And so it's all public record. But 
Sure. I find it. I watch because the mo- it's and it's not IB itself that I have the problem with. I think improv just got into this habit of being um, uh, uh, cannibalistic with where their money comes from. That uh, is what disgusts me because, dude, I did improv. I did short form. I was tried to, t- t- in 96, somebody tried teaching, uh, 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 the Baltimore Shakespeare Company came to our, our, our improv classes in 97, 96, whatever it was, and tried to start teaching us long form. We're like, fuck this, we want to tell jokes. Like, leave us alone. Right. Um, and now I look back, I was like, oh, I really wish I would have paid more attention to what that guy was telling us. Like, we were just arrogant teenagers, high schoolers. But uh, is that, it's that culture of, you don't pay the performers. You don't pay people involved. You have volunteers working at the at the center, but yet at the same time you're paying, uh, you're collecting money from classes and shows and concessions and tour company and and private lessons and all this. There's so much money coming into improv places, but none of it's going out to the performers. And I can't understand that when you look at the comedy studio. Two years ago, started and they couldn't pay for the longest time because financially there's no money coming in. Right. It's the door, right, and that's it. Now maybe they could have started paying people earlier. Had if Rick Jenkins had a day job, maybe and wasn't needing the money to fund both the business and his life. Which is I'm not knocking him on that. I need to have him on this so we can have that discussion of what is it you do all day. But, <laughs> but it's it's but he started paying performers not much fifty bucks a night and he has, you know, about the same performers what ten to twelve people uh, on a weekend probably what eight to ten on a Friday and Saturday night that he was paying and how many people were in a typical main stage cast eight to ten yeah um so they do pay some of their performers they pay all of their all of their main cast I know tour co- yeah. co- company does touring company main I don't I don't actually don't know. What's most recent? But I know they started paying their main casts recently. Recently, was that before um, or after the fundraiser a couple years ago? I don't know. Okay, yeah, no, I don't know. Sorry. Yeah, um, I know you're not that involved. But... No, I don't know. I don't know. I know that they they have made a solid effort to get their uh, the people who are on their stages the most paid, which is great. Um, but I don't. I know they have a finance chair on the board of directors. Um, I don't know enough about their finances. I do know this. They're comparatively like if you want to use the studio as a reference like paying eight comics or 10 comics or even 12 comics twice a, twice a week 50 bucks versus paying everybody like improv boston has i think nine shows on a saturday with who knows how many performers and i think it just i don't know if it'd be financially fees i don't know i have no idea i'm yeah, very I, i'm flexible on the who gets paid yeah, and, right, and right. who shouldn't get paid like, right right Okay, maybe studio forty people audiences don't get paid or don't get paid as much. Right. Um, I know they did the GoFundMe so they could start paying directors, and I'm like, whoa, timeout, fuck you, pay the performers before you play, pay the directors of these things, which are, or coaches, whatever you guys call it. It's like, which I don't understand. Like, they're a feedback person. I don't understand why they're that. Like, the amount of people I see post, like, hey everybody, I'm gonna start. Uh, I'm a coach for, or I'm a director for available now. If you want to start. I mean, to come to your practices. I'm like, that's, I don't get why so, that's a thing. Is that, I mean, a necessary need to have somebody watching and feedback? I had the teacher who did it for us, our so drama teacher. But. I think there's there's different levels of improv teams. So Improv Boston has directors that they hire for their main company cast. When it comes to like 
Studio 40 and uh, I don't know. When it comes to the indie teams, it gets it's a very it's a gray area. Improv Boston doesn't pay any of those people. Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's improv is a bigger beast. Like this is what I've always said to people who've had problems with improv Boston is that, you know, it's just a different beast than any other comedy club. Like, it's got a board of directors, an artistic director, a managing director, a comedy school, the head of the comedy school, a front of house director. Like, there's so many people that have to be involved. And then their their mission statement is they serve the community through laughter. So they're beholden to their community because they're a nonprofit. So there's all of these, like, it's not like, it's not a one person making all of the decisions. And a lot of the people that make the biggest, take the biggest shots at IB, you know, who are stand-ups are like, yeah, that guy, he hires and books everything there. That's he he makes all he calls all the shots, right? So if you like him, you're not gonna complain. But improv Boston, like, for better or for worse, has to listen to everybody. They have to. And uh it's it's much harder because they're beholden to so many more people. And and they they would rarely tell someone to fuck off. You know, I, I think yeah, I think that's the most important thing to take away when you're looking at a company like that. Um they, and like I said, their growth is absurd. It's absurd. Like I mentioned earlier, like back in the day, if you saw someone in the green room, you didn't know it would be a big deal. Now, if you're there Thursday, Friday, or Saturday, if you know everybody in the green room, it's a big deal. Like, I don't know. I feel like a foreigner to Improv Boston. I haven't been in a company. I left Turco a couple years ago, and I'm there to teach, and I've done a couple of one-off, you know, I've done some stand-up there and a couple of one-off improv shows. But like, I, the the community turns over so fast that, um, yeah, it's just the proximity to the T right there and being right in Central Square, and and their name is getting bigger because there's more and more people involved. So it's it's intense, dude. So so when like when it comes to their finances, I don't have the foggiest idea what goes on, but I do know that it's more complicated than most people understand. Yeah, yeah. It's not one person going, yeah, I can pay you. It's a lot of people. Like they have board they have board meetings every six weeks, um, and I couldn't tell you what the board of directors does. Uh, I I have an idea, but I haven't been so, in. It sounds like there's just a, now that you tell me this, it sounds like there's a lot of generals when it comes to IB. Oh, yeah. Uh, which I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. I mean, there's the adage of too many cooks spoil the soup, yeah. but they are they are showing pr- uh, progress to uh, their success. Yeah. But also they have a prime location, so and they have a lot of real estate. So there's a lot yeah. of that money goes back into just. I mean, there's a lot of maintenance space. involved. I used to be the ops manager from 2011 to 2013. I worked there almost full time, and there's so much that goes on that people don't understand. Like, there's just they have right now their comedy school occupies both the two training center spaces, the main theater, the studio. They have a, a space at 620 Mass Ave that has three Across classrooms. Street, yeah. yeah. And and that's not enough space. It's and they're nuts. buying the tattoo, or not buying, but they're going to start taking over the tattoo shop next door, right? Uh, Isn't that what they announced at the, the 35 years? 35 I think they, hours they had plans to do something with that, but I haven't heard anything. This is how out of the loop I am. I'm like, yeah, yeah I guess. I don't know. I don't know. I know they announced it that, like, I was talking to uh, Laurie, house manager, been there a long time, glasses tall. House manager, long time, glasses tall. She took like three months off and just came back. Uh, anyway her yeah. and i were I, i'm terrible with names because i only go there every couple of months so i see people and we have such a recognition of each other and such a rapport from talking every time yeah but i i go between three and four months seeing them because of you know schedules and whatnot so i don't notice i forget their names yeah um her and i were talking about they, they were teasing this big announcement at the end of the 35 hours for 35 years um fundraiser 
and that's what the the announcement was that they were, they were taking over the the tattoo shop but i don't know what's happened since that because i've heard nothing right since then and at that time i was thinking it's like studio's looking for a space you have space let's get used to groups together and let's do the comedy studio at at ib and let give Rick a full time job as yeah. the the manager of the How comedy sweet club. Would there. That be? It would have been a perfect. There's idea. also that empty space right across the street. There's that empty space that used to be CCTV right across the street. Like that would be such a sweet spot for another club or something. Right? It's just I think comedy begets comedy, man. I don't I don't see I don't get competitive about things. I understand why people have gripes, and I I, I love I think the more comedy the better. You know, obviously like. You don't want you don't want the market too saturated, and you want people to be running the shows the best way they can. But I, I, yeah, I feel like I feel like Boston's got a lot of good shows right now. Yeah. Um, on uh, one last one about the the finances. Um, when we look at again your your opinion, we we can't talk about you can't speak for IB or any other no. club. But is there does it seem to you that the way that it does to me that the model of improv finances where it's we don't pay performers has just snowballed and become a tradition because that's the way it was always done. So now that's the way we continue to keep doing, even though they don't entertain the idea because they're like, well, we've always done it this way. To some degree, yeah, but I think that's definitely changing because improv has become much more popular in the last yeah. 20 years. Like, um, So I think people have vocally... like It's not that model is no longer sustainable. Performers have spoken up. Performers have gotten paid more. Directors are getting paid. You know, like I think, you know, IB does a a great job within its means to listen to what the feedback is. But I definitely think that back in the day, I I never thought getting paid as an improviser would be a a thing. And so when it first started happening to me, I mean, when I first heard that it was going to happen at IB, I was like, wow, this is great. Uh, And then when I was in touring company, I was like, this is great. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it'll, it'll keep getting better and better. Improv is, is absurdly popular right now. Yeah. Uh, don't think twice per Bigley's movie certainly helped that. Um, you know, uh, you go to New York and like, there's like three major, you know, UCB and the pit, like all these. Uh, and uh, now the pit in New York has two locations. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's nuts. Uh, well on that, um, cause I know I've definitely heard the stories about or hear comedians complaining about doing a free show at IP while watching uh, the, what's, uh, what's Amy Sedaris? Is she the one from, who started in Upright Sydney, Brian? The woman I'm thinking of. You're thinking of Amy Poehler. Amy Poehler. Yeah. I knew it was Amy something. Yeah. I've heard stories of Amy Poehler doing drop-in improv sets at UCB and then doing a passing of the hat when you're like, you're making millions of dollars a year. Why are you passing around a hat? My so. hope would be that that hat is for the other performers. Yeah. yeah. That's the, right, where right. the red comes out. And yeah. I, yeah. Things have changed in the past two, three that's years. Ty- that's funny that there's tithing at UCB. They pass a hat. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's uh, that happens at the Cantab Lounge. Sometimes the performers will aggressively pass a hat a lot around. Well, we have a lot of stand-up shows that are past the hat only shows, which is great, but just too many of them, I think. Like yeah. do the people show do pay what you want. That's an awesome idea and I love it and it's great. Uh pay a dollar, pay ten dollars, whatever. I've definitely the few times that I've done it, uh, because IB doesn't let stand ups in for free, where I've had to pay for it just to hang out, uh, I give them whatever the bill is in my pocket and they go, How much you know, I'll hand them a ten, they're like, How much let's just uh, keep it. Like, it's pay what you want, you just pay a dollar. I'm like, 
yeah, well, now I just pay for nine other people yep. to come in. Like, yeah. It's fine. Yeah. Um, uh, when you Throughout your years with Improv Boston, what's been the attitude towards Improv Asylum? It's good. It's a pretty good relationship. Like there was a, when I first started in the early 2000s, there was, this is what bothers me. The scene, the scene always tries to create beefs. Yeah. There is never, as far as I know, been an, a beef between Improv Boston and Improv Asylum. They're just different theaters. Yeah. Like Improv Asylum is for profit. They are uh, a polished sketch comedy, improv comedy. Like they cater to a, almost a different audience. Like they're, you know, they're polished, they're corporate, they're on the, freedom trail uh you know they don't have stand-up really there they they they're the, any any perceived beef was blown out of proportion like i've known you know my years with improv boston i've never known people to be there's no comp i know that there's a, a non-compete clause in the main stages in the touring companies but that's just because business right yeah. there's no um, but you yeah. can't work for both. Right, prices. right. But I know that even that is loosened up. I know a lot of performers have done, you know, sh casts in both locations. So I, I don't, I don't ever remember there being any tension with, I mean, maybe with individuals, but never from a company standpoint. But a company like the, the, you know, heads of that place and IB have always been the core. In fact, I remember when Will Luera, the old artistic director, got roasted at IB. The IA people came. And they entered to uh, uh, money, money, money. And they just were throwing money around because they were the corporate. And it was great. It, it was, it, as, far as, I, as far as I can remember, there's never been any bad blood between those those two. Um, they're just, they operate differently, you know? And, and sometimes people perceive that as, as a beef. Um, but they're both they're both great. Like if IA puts on great shows. Like they're very good at what they do. I saw uh, when I first moved here, I got tickets to, the only time I've been, I've been there twice. Uh, other than out flying for BCF outside. Right. Uh, the two times I'm there, one was to see a one-man show by this, I forget her first name, but it was Fitzgerald was her last name. Kylie. Might have been it. Yeah. About growing up in Dorchester. And yep. I was like, this is goddamn good. Like, yep. this was, she had some, imp the, the whole the whole thing was a one-man show about her growing up in Dorchester. And then she had like two or three different character improv yep. moments in between scenes where I was like, these may not have gone perfect, but they went well enough She's to great. me to go that yeah. it was a good thing. She's great. Uh, and I, I was highly impressed with that. And then the only other time I went, I went to uh, audition uh, for, for them and I ran in there, got in there, got there late. Uh, they were just about to do the last one. They let me in. I ran. I was like, sorry, I was, I, I didn't mean you know, time. I, didn't, I was working and this yeah. and that. And they're like, all right, no, that's cool. It's fine. We were, yeah, we were literally just doing, introducing the name. So you're, you're on time. Uh, real quick though, what level are you? I'm like, uh, and by level, 40. do you mean, <laughs> yeah, right? Black I'm belt. Like, <laughs> but, and I went, I knew where the question was like, by level, do you mean how many classes have I taken here or level at which I am at a performance level? And they're like, classes here is like none. And they're like, yeah, you can only, you, you can, the only way you can audition is you have to take classes. And I was like, all right, fuck you. Goodbye. Yeah. Um, whereas IB, they'll take anybody. And I've done an IB audition and went, yeah, I'm too rusty at this. This was not good. This was not a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, is there, uh, 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 in your opinion, uh, better, is it better or worse to hold audition only for students or open auditions? Is it good, bad? Yes, no? I think the advantage of holding auditions just for students is they know your flavor. They know what you're looking for, right? They know your style. They've been groomed for it, right? The downside to that is 
you get somebody who just moved in from out of town who's got improv chops or somebody who's a natural and now you know you miss that person and that person goes to the other place um but yeah i don't you know each theater does their thing their own way uh, yeah, one thing you don't have to do in stand-up is audition. You can just send a clip. Yeah, You know, a no is nobody returns your email. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> you never hear the no, yeah, you yeah. just feel it. Yeah, yeah, you feel it forever. <laughs> yeah. That person doesn't like me. Now, the one-on-one sessions that you that you do now, yeah, uh, or that you were talking about doing, sure. how is that different? And you might not know the answer because you might not know what this is, but uh, there are not only life coaches, but now there are life coaches for comedy. Um, is it similar? Is it different? Is it do you do you perceive there to be what you're doing is different than what they do? Yeah, because here's the thing. I'm not an asshole. If somebody tells me a goal they have and I don't have the tools for it, I'm not gonna try to push them. Right? Like I, I tell people when I'm out of my depth. You know, like if somebody's like, I want to do X, Y, and Z. If I haven't done X, Y, and Z, I can get you to this level. You know, I can get I, I can get you to C or D, right? Like if I, you you want X, Y, and Z, here are some people you should talk to. Um, I also like people have told me I should be a life coach. That freaks me the fuck out. Look at my credit score and tell me I should be a life coach. Right? <laughs> Look at my bedroom and tell me I should be a life coach. Like I, you know, I'm positive and I like to encourage people, but like, you know, I guess I could help people, people build their confidence. Like if you take the comedy part out of it, like there isn't a difference because ultimately what you're doing is encouraging somebody. Right. But when you keep the comedy part in, there has to be goals. It has to be goal related. And, and, uh, when somebody says, I want your help and they don't have a goal, I'm like, well, you need more help. You need a goal. Come back to me with a goal and send me a clip of any public speaking or shows you've already done. Right. And that, that's a jump off point. And then I can give them an assessment. Usually I'll do a quick, you know, coffee and I'll do an assessment. What do you want to do? What's your goal? And if they're like, I don't know. then I'm like, you gotta know. <laughs> Cause I'm not, you know, like I'm, I don't have that kind of time. And I, I can't be, yeah, I could, you know, sometimes I realize somebody wants to do improv or somebody wants their back padded and, you know, I can pat your back, but I'm not going to, you know, that's not what I want to do. I've definitely told people you're, I can't work with this. Yeah. By the way, how long does it take to drive to Roslindale? I have no idea. I don't even know where it is. It's uh, near Roxbury, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, well, let's, I'll do, I got two questions for you. And sure, sure. I, I have no idea too. myself. Yeah. I actually didn't know where Roslindale was until yeah. the other day. Yeah, yeah. I finally looked it up. It should probably be like 20 minutes, right? The, at least. Yeah. I'll get you there before 10 for Val's show. Yeah. Uh, but the, um, the thing about it was we were pitching uh, our play to that place, to uh, the right theater. Yeah. yeah. And she asked me what my opinion of it was. I was like, with JP, I could tell you this, this, and this. Yeah. With the new spot, not a clue. But so the last two questions um, are: uh, Do you consider yourself more a writer or performer? Performer. I hate writing. I hate. I hate writing. In fact, I have had to, in order to write in a way that feels productive, um, I use my audio app. I vocally write. If I have an idea, I talk it out, and or or I'll talk it and write at the same time. Um, I don't have, I still, after all this time, don't have a writing routine that makes me feel productive. Um, that's part of the reason improv will never go away because I do a lot of stage writing. I do some play on stage and some crowd work and I love to mix my jokes up and see how I make, how it works, right? How that flow feels. Um, but I hate to write. So I'm definitely more of a performer and I'm trying to be more, I was talking today with a friend. I need to be more goofy on stage. I'm a goofy person and I'm a little goofy on stage, but I'm still, I still feel like a hundred percent myself on stage. I say my personal opinion, your stage percent persona. And I think this is where you're, where you feel the differences. There's an aggressiveness to it. There's still 
goofy DJB in there. Yeah. But I think sometimes your aggressiveness can overshine that because yeah. it's almost hostile. Yeah. A little bit. And I think yeah. that comes from years of dealing with bad audiences. Yeah. Which you're great at, dude. I've seen you deal with hecklers and 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 violent people at shows yeah. brilliantly. But I think that you're you too sometimes go out on stage with that a little too much. Yeah. Uh, especially with like at um, Aeronaut, where you got this loud room of people that yeah. are kind of not paying attention. So you go in a little too aggressive. Yeah. So those the 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 pun jokes yeah. don't land as well as they should well, because you're they should never land. <laughs> well, yeah. Jokes in general, yeah. like even some of your darker right. stuff or yeah. whatever. Um, which I I love the jokes about your dad yeah. not being you know uh, you, you you what is it uh Santa's your dad is like you, you believe, believe in, in my, my dad, dad? Yeah. like yeah. they feel they're dark jokes but when you have that attack at it a little bit can pull away and i think that's yeah. what you're feeling is sure you're feeling on the on edge when you're want to be a little less on edge my opinion yeah, i don't know no, if that that's works good. with your idea yeah i definitely have seen that like a lot of times i've listened to my audio or seen like there was a show i did a nightcap once and i came out and i was like yeah i did like an aggressive yell when i came out on stage and there was no reason for it and it definitely like it wasn't even it was just like that combined with that edge that you see turn the audience off and nothing hit after that. And I was like, never do that. You never yell at the beginning of your set. Um, but, but I am, I'm pretty good at reading an audience. And I think that that, you know, watching video is like, yeah, be a little bit more like you can be aggressive, but it doesn't have to be ever present. Yeah. You know? And that, that's my favorite thing is when somebody doesn't assume you can handle a situation and you handle it. Right. Like, uh, but yeah, you're right. I've seen, I'm very good in audiences where it's, rowdy but they want it you know sometimes it's rowdy and they don't care that you're there but when i like when they're that's my one of my favorite kind when they're rowdy and they're into it it's like all right let's do this terry o'reilly's on wednesdays is the exact environment for yeah that. Like, yeah off and on it's that way but when it's when it's hostile it's a fun hostile because they want you to be into it uh and that's why i loved going there so much i felt now because i'm busy on wednesdays but um <laughs> So yeah, uh, I, I feel you're on the performer side. Yeah. Because I meet comedians who are just like straight up like, why are you on stage? You're clearly a writer. Write things. Go find a way to write. Yeah. Um, I've always felt like I'm the more performer side. So I, I, I agree with you on that. But you're definitely more a performer or writer. But I want to hear other people's opinions on it. And the last one, this is going to be the fun one. Yeah. Uh, if you and I were in a coaching session, what would you give me as a note on my thing? And you are allowed to be mean to me. Don't feel like you're, you don't... Because you're on my podcast, you don't have to hurt my feelings. That's a great... I haven't seen a set in a while. Yeah. So, um, yeah. You're, the note you gave me, I would give a similar note to you. I think that sometimes you're... It's it's a general disdain. It's not necessarily a, date, a, a, a disdain <laughs> for the audience, but I think that plays, right? I think uh, the strategy that I teach my students that I think I'm good at is building a bridge, right? Like, let, how do I get this audience to like me? And I think there are a few ways to do that. Um, I think you could be a little bit more playfully self-deprecating up front in a way that's like, no, no, let's do that. Like, let, you know, like, and uh, yeah, I think you're, from what I remember, and forgive me, I haven't seen your yeah, in a while, while, but you are aggressive on stage. And I think yeah. when things aren't going well, that plays against you, right? Uh, and that's why yeah. I notice your aggressiveness because that's something I've always had to focus on. Yeah. Because I haven't, I agree with you. I, I, there's an aggressiveness to everything I do. Um for good or bad, like yeah. Jesse and I have the joke that I'm aggressively social. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you're, you will be friends with me whether you want to or not. Well, you're an aggressive person, yeah. right? And that's a you know that's it's got 
I would, you know, with anything, it's got its ups and downs. I think on stage, I think for me, the audience, what, what a lot of standups miss is they don't care enough about the audience, right? And they don't care enough about likability gets you so far on stage. Mm-hmm. If the audience likes you, they're going to take your, they're going to take your risks with a grain of salt. If an audience likes you, you're not going to have to dig yourself out of a hole. If an audience li- like, so especially in a shorter set, like how can I make myself likable to this audience right now? And sometimes if you're at a VFW or a venue like House of Bacon up in Auburn, Maine, you yell at them right away, right? You get them, you, you make a comment about the person that's been talking shit from the audience the whole time, right? You build a bridge by some commonality, some elephant in the room, right? Or you make a self-deprecating joke about yourself that captures something they were thinking about you before you said anything, right? And I, I think that, yeah, I'd love to take a, I'd like, love to look at one of your sets and see if I have more, uh, more productive notes than that. But I think that, yeah, uh, you, you know, and you know this, you, you come off as an angry person sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's not even yeah. like most, like I'm on so many happy pills yeah, right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. They're, I, but I still look mean. It's the but bald that's head, ha- the glasses. It's hard, especially chest. for dudes. It's yeah. hard, especially for dudes. If you are a, an angry presenting guy, an audience wants to know that they're safe and that you're driving the car. Even if you're going to do dark and edgy material, they just want to know that you're in charge. And, uh, and, the, and the best way to be that, and this is hard, is to be vulnerable and be like, hey, here's who I am. Yes, I also know it sucks, right? <laughs> I know that what you're looking at sucks because I have mirrors, right? Like, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so yeah, that, that's my button feedback on the fly. Not having I, seen you I think it's definitely on the nose. Yeah, cool. Uh, I agree with you on, on it. On the nose. <laughs> I was like, yeah. when, do we, when are we going to get to the nose jokes yeah. in this podcast? Well, this is just audio. <laughs> so hopefully there's a picture that accommodates this. Oh, don't worry. They kept hearing it knocking against the mic the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> the snorting. Uh, which, by the way, I have to, when I first started doing this podcast at the old place, I was overweight and I had to actually cut out my. Uh, yep. Because yep. I was breathing so heavily because I was fat. And I lost weight and I noticed it went away. Now I've gained back weight and now I worry I'm going to listen to this with so close to here while you're talking. If you just hear me in the background going. (sighs) 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 So, all right, Dana, this was great. I love every moment of it. Thanks for having uh, me. Good. Uh, I I think I found some good stuff that this is my first time trying to turn a podcast into an article. Okay. uh, Where I've done a couple of phone calls with the, uh, that of, become article yeah. or with the intention of being an article that turned into a podcast. Yeah. So I think, uh, I got some stuff to extract here and, um, I know you're honest about everything. I know yeah. I, I like, I always worry sometimes when I talk to you, I was like, I'm waiting for you to, to say what I know is not the truth, especially when it comes to IB. Yeah. I'm like, no, that's the truth. He's, He's definitely I, telling his opinion. You know, if, like, if, he's not hiding thing. He's not trying to I, not if, bad talk it. If I knew something was bad or if I knew, you know, I would be the first to be out there with it. You know, like I just, yeah, I, I don't, I, I, I can't, I could not play poker if I tried because I don't, <laughs> I can't, I, I can't, I don't have a lying face. I, I suck at lying. And, uh, maybe that's why my comedy needs improvement. <laughs> maybe I need to be, no, I think again, your eyes are the window to your sense of humor and your eyes are where your tells are. So yeah, I would, yeah, I, I think I was as honest as I could be today. You were, and I loved it. Uh, and it was good, interesting stuff. Um, focus on finally having somebody in here who uh, is a comedy teacher. Hell yeah. Because I feel like that's one of the f- few jobs in the comedy world that I've been missing so far. Good talk. Let's uh, figure out where the hell Rothendale is yeah. and uh, <laughs> take off. <laughs> Thanks. That yeah, was fun, dude. Better time. Better time.
的他。